Hey, it's your host for the Eternal Leadership Podcast, John Ramsey, here with Sandra Crawford-Williamson. How are you today, Sandra? Having a great day, John. Great to be with you. Well, a crazy topic today. So first of all, let me just kind of sum up our, uh, our, our conversation you're about to hear, and that is, is the church even relevant in today's society? Right? Whoa. Kind of a controversial topic, isn't it, Sandra? Heavy, super heavy. So you're going to hear a conversation with Garris Elkins. Garris has been on before. He's just become a great friend and mentor. And, uh, you know, Garris asks a question, right? And what is the ultimate goal of training and equipping um, that the church has to do the work of ministry? And, you know, Garris is not a big fan of the word ministry because it actually carries a lot of baggage, kind of like the word Christian does. And so, you know, a little bit about Garris. He was a pastor for 30 years. Um, and his whole focus, his passion, his mission is to, to raise up a prophetic generation who just want to speak to the different, you know, we're going to talk about the seven mountains. If you guys haven't heard about that, it is a concept you absolutely need to be fluent in. Religion is just one of those mountains. The marketplace business is another one of those mountains. But we're going to be taught, he's going to be talking about this reformation that's happening right now that I got to tell you is very exciting, incredibly compelling. And, you know, what, what are some of the key points in this conversation that just really, um, you know, stood out to you, Sandra? Well, I have to say, you know, it was interesting because as you talk about is church relevant in today's society, a lot of people cringe, right? Nobody wants to talk about that. If you're, you know, thriving part of a local church, you know, people are offended by that. If you're not part of a local church, maybe it's because you've been hurt. And so, you know, people are passionate about that. So this is a very hot topic, but I want to encourage you, no matter if you're on one of those sides or in the middle, please take a listen because, you know, he was a traditional pastor for 30 years in a traditional local church, different ones. Um, but, you know, what he has realized is that if Christians are not, you know, in the world living out their faith, then the the hope for the world becomes dim, right? So if you think about the seven pillars or seven mountains that make up a culture, religion's one of them. But the six others are media, government, family, education, business, arts and entertainment. And so there's a lot of stuff out there. I speak about it a lot that as Christians, we've sort of retreated from five of the seven pillars that are holding up our culture. And so we're sort of teetering this this Christian culture um, with just two pillars of family and religion. And the other five, we've sort of just surrendered. And, um, you know, he is very passionate about this. And he says, for the local church to be relevant, we have to be in in all of these pillars. And so he talks about some things that that they did. Um, and so there's some really neat things, whether you're attending a local church, not attending, if you're part of the leadership of a local church, there's some great things here. But what's really cool and encouraging, he now goes around the world and consults with churches and focuses his efforts on how can they be extremely impactful in communities. Yeah, and 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 love it, and we need to do that. So I, you know, I love also his definition of love. We talked about this a little bit, um, 
and because this is kind of like this operating system that we're bringing to work and it, it's seeking the highest good for another person. So just imagine at your workplace, if everybody around you is just seeking the highest good for everybody there, your peers, your colleagues, your boss, your coworkers, your subordinates, amazing. It just, uh, and we're going to share some really practical stories in how to's this whole concept of reformation and actually bringing the church into alignment with what the rest of us need on Monday through Friday as we're out in the world and in the spheres of influence that God has put us in and actually how to make a difference and how to make an impact. And you know, we are all about making uh, uh, an impact here on this podcast. Absolutely. So um, why someone should, you know, want to listen to this? I mean, it, it goes on and on. But what's really neat is he talks very practically about if we can approach as, as a total. Hey, Sandra, you're a total digital monster. If we can Sandra, can you hear me? Sandra? Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah I went, can hear you. You went total digital like I couldn't even understand you. Uh-oh. All right. Well, where do we want to go from here? Yeah, you're still bad. So let me just wrap it up. I'll let Steve, you know. So, hey, so um, what you're going to hear toward the, you know, one of the parts of this conversation that I think could be one thing that we could do, and I want you guys to listen toward the end of this, but we talk about how do we operate in the world as believers, right, with people that have completely different belief systems with us? How do we connect before we can pull it is a huge piece, and Garris really puts it together eloquently about how we can just have uh, just a massive positive influence in this world. And that is really our call to action to you guys is to go out and find somebody that you are, are you know, opposite views on and get to know them and have a conversation, I think. And we want to hear about it. Go out and have that conversation. Let us know how it goes and, if you, and, and, and share this podcast with somebody. We'd love to have you subscribe. Um, but you are going to love this next conversation that continues on the other one that we had with Garris. So here you go. All right, this is John Ramstead, one of your hosts on Eternal Leadership, and I have with us today Steve Ryder and Sandra Crawford Williamson. And you know, as a team, Garris, we welcome you back to the podcast. Thank you. You know, uh, Garris, you had one of our most popular episodes. I'd love for everybody to go back and listen to Garris Elkins. It's episode 80. You can go to eternalleadership.com forward slash 080. Uh, you know, here's some, we just had this amazing conversation. I should have hit record when, when we were all just chatting about this. But, you know, there is something going on. And, and I just want to share just kind of a personal story on this is, you know, after my accident and as I was recovering and my life had been spared, I I knew with total certainty, Garris, that my life had been spared for a reason. And God is moving in a big way right now. And it's not in what I would consider kind of the traditional kind of church or, you know, uh, you know, religion kind of world. It's, it's transforming lives and changing mindsets and changing hearts and changing, you know, having people tap into who we are, our passions, our gifts, our strengths, so that we can go out in the world and actually, you know, accomplish what God has told us to accomplish. Right. And, and that, and, and we're talking, and I know we're all big fans of the seven mountains and it's about actually going back and taking back territory in these mountains. And I know we're going to be talking about that. And you just wrote this amazing book on the sound of reformation. 
and I'm I, I'm really excited for people to hear about some of the stuff that we were just talking about. But um, can you share a little bit about you know uh, where this whole idea for you, where how it came on your heart? And we're going to talk about today, people listening in business, wherever you're at, the practical implications of exactly what this means. Man, you you guys are going to just uh, uh, leave hearing this episode just on fire, in my opinion. Well, thank you for letting me be with you today. I just, I'm, I'm very passionate about what we're talking about today. And in, in our pre-interview conversation, I, my passion even went to another level uh, <laughs> Sandra, and uh, talk with you guys. But uh, my, my journey in this was uh, out of that place where I was doing what many of your listeners are doing. We're just trying to do that faithful thing for God and, and day in and day, day out do the same thing, uh, but do it faithfully. And then I got invited to speak at a conference on Reformation in April of last year, and that invitation came. I'll never forget the day. It was November 26th of 2016. A friend of mine invited me to uh, kick off a conference on Reformation, and I wanted to tell him, uh, but I didn't say this. I said, I think you've got the wrong guy. It's not me. Why don't you get an academic here? And I didn't say all of those words that I said yes because he's a friend, and then I hung the phone up and said, oh, God, help me, because my understanding of Reformation came out of my studies uh, uh, in years before about Martin Luther and, and the year 1517 and the repercussions of that, that pre- prepare, uh, presented to the, to the world. And I didn't really have any idea what he was talking about. He was talking about a reformation happening right now. So I dove into studies, and when I came to speak at that conference, uh, I had a personal transformation that had taken place in the preceding five months where I discovered something that I had never seen before, where the church now, in, in many reflections, is living in a divide between the secular and the sacred, where uh, we'll have our idea of a preferred future, and it's all considered sacred, and everything else outside in the world is secular, and there's this division, and God is removing that division, this reformation. So I I said, God, start me on this journey of study, because I don't want to get up there and, and and uh, stumble when I teach. And the Lord took me immediately, says, go to Acts 17. And I said, okay. So I went to Acts 17. I, I happen to like Athens, Greece. I've been there a number of times and stood on the very places that Paul spoke some of these words. And the Lord says, I want you to talk uh, about the unknown God. I want you to introduce the church to the unknown God. I said, wait a minute, Lord. <laughs> these are born again people. Uh, what do you mean? Uh, he said, I want to introduce and in some cases, reintroduce my church to unknown aspects of my, my heart. Uh, we've seemed to have lost our way, and, and the Lord was saying to me, I want you to unpack something for the church. I want it to be very simple. This is not an academic work at all. There's plenty of great academic resources out there. This is a concept. And he took me from Acts 17 to uh, Ephesians 4, where, you know, I've read this as many times as anybody listening to this podcast, uh, where Paul talks about the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers that are these gifts to the church who are used by the Spirit to train and equip the church to bring us to a place of maturity where we are no longer immature, we're no longer tossed about by every wind of new teaching and doctrine, we're not influenced when people present lies to us so clever they sound like the truth. And I always thought that was a static uh, end result of what it meant to be equipped by the five gifts that Paul wrote about. And the Lord completely upended my world because 
I went back to the text, and it says, then we'll no longer be immature children. Instead, and that word instead changed everything. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love. And the Lord says, Gareth, this is something that's not been tapped in, in our training. We, we have missed it. It's, I haven't given you the five equipping gifts to just produce pastors and missionaries in a traditional sense. I've given the five gifts to train the church how to speak the truth and love from the summits of the seven mountains of cultural influence in the unique vernacular of that mountain. In other words, media has a language, government has a language, economy has a language. And I'm not asking you to go train them to be economists. They'll do that in their own, on their own. But uh, what I want you to do is to train people to determine the sound of truth spoken in love. And so when I, when I came away from that, I, I walked into the auditorium where the uh, conference was going to take place. And as I was walking to meet the host of the conference, the Lord says, I want you to make this a book. And at that time I'd written six books and, you know, 15 or 1600 blog articles. I honestly didn't want to write anything more. I, I thought I was done with it. And the Lord says, I want you to write it and I want it released soon. So I went into writing seclusion for two months. I asked my wife, who's a published author and, to give me a hand with that, we put the notes of my teaching together. And again, not academic, but concept-driven. And it had to be simple, which is harder to write sometimes than a complicated book. And when I did that, the book came out in June. And to be honest with you, uh, I just got out of a conference last week, and I've got several more ahead of me right now in churches and leadership structures, uh, in the business world, and in whatever context, I'm talking now about the sound of reformation, which is the truth spoken in love. So I've been, I've been upended. I, I'm 68 years old. I feel like I'm 25. Uh, I, I, I'm healthy and strong. I've probably got another 30 years on this dear earth, I hope. And if I do, I want to finish it up, awakening the church to the sound of reformation and to also massage the fatigue of leadership who have overcomplicated the approach of Reformation and made it something that it was never intended to be. And I want to demystify it. I want to get rid of that sacred-secular divide. And then I want to empower the people who've abandoned the church. They've not abandoned God, but they've abandoned the current model of the church we're offering to them. And if leadership gets offended with that, they'll miss the very turning point of effectiveness they can have by embracing something new and by that embracing of something new, they will become part of Reformation themselves instead of living in an isolated, protective place where typically a, a pastoral ministry, and I'm speaking from personal experience, we can become protective of what we have, thinking that protecting what we have is really our calling, when in reality, the gift of pastor is to simply create the healthy environment where shifts and change like this can happen. So that's where I'm at. Uh, there's a million things I could talk about. But that lays a little bit of groundwork that maybe will spark some questions from you to me. Well, yeah, let, let me share a thought because, you know, you know, when I first hear, you know, this concept, right, you know, the I think the yeah. traditional mindset Garris kicks in, right, is, you know, I'm a yeah. member of a traditional church that I go to, I drive to and I go there on Sunday. And for me to influence the church and their culture and their pastor, when my in my experience, there hasn't been a lot of engagement in, you know, trying to have influence outside of their mountain, right? You talk about the seven cultural mountains, which are government, mm -hmm. religion, education, the marketplace or economy, arts and entertainment, media, and the family, right? And um, yes. 
What I'd like to have you address, right? Because our audience, you know, these are all leaders right. in, in business and ministry, and, you know, and, and they have significant influence or want to develop significant influence in that sphere that they're planted in. What does Reformation look like practically for somebody out there who really, up to this point, really hasn't had their equipping needs met by a traditional church? A great question. I I had a, a, a couple of pastors stay with us for a few days here uh, earlier this year, and he pastors one of the larger, more influential churches in America. And I just, I'm not going to mention the name, but he just is a significant leader with a significant church. And they both came and read the book, The Sound of Reformation, and uh, then we spent some time talking about it. And his question was, what your question sounded a lot like. And he says, then how do we do this? And I think there's a couple of things that need to take place before we practically, in quotes, do something with this concept. One is that Martin Luther, when he, when he tagged those 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church, he was prophetic. And, and he didn't nail it on the inside because those inside were not willing to receive it. So we're in a place now where the knock of the prophetic reformer is knocking on the door of the church and wise leaderships will not, excuse me, wise leadership will not shun that sound. They will go to the door and open the door. And the first thing that I would tell anybody about getting any traction with leaders, this is not an either or thing. It's not binary. It's not like we're going to burn our churches down. We're all going to meet in home groups, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it's not an either or concept. It's not either or it's more. And what I, what I would tell people is to ask God to give them the wisdom to approach leadership, not with a program, but with a mindset where the existing church is not going to go away. The model that we have now is not going to fade into the distance. Uh, It has a valuable place, but there's something more that God wants to do. And the practical thing here would really be going to, in fact, I, this is interesting. Yesterday, I, I met with a leadership team of a church here in Oregon, and I said, if I was structuring this church and they're looking to engage some of what we're talking about here, I would have two two staffs. I would have a staff that would keep the doors open, the heat on, the preaching going, the worship going, but I would have another staff that would be seven mountains. I would have seven leadership structures in the church where we would have apostolic-minded leaders from the community that would be our advisors in those seven mountains. And I would not just have a traditional church staff where I have a group that keeps the doors open and the ministry going in a traditional sense. I would have uh, world changers in seven core groups, and I would begin to invest in meeting with them. Uh, I've got some friends uh, in Bend, Oregon, Bobby Hobby, uh, who pastors Eagle Mountain Fellowship, went and talked to significant leaders in his community about the church and asked them what they thought of the church. And people were just saying to him, you guys are irrelevant. So Bobby went out to find the seven mountains in his culture. This is where he got his traction, by the way. He defined those seven mountains and the three major players in all seven mountains, that's 21 significant leaders in his region. And he's going to them asking, how can we serve you? Not how can you become like us politically, not how can you change your ungodly lifestyle and live in purity. He's going into the world, and he's going to the Samaritan well. As Jesus, this text says, he went through Samaria. We have to go through Samaria and be willing to take a drink of fellowship 
from the container that the, the Samaritan woman drank from. Jesus wasn't afraid of her saliva, if you know what I'm saying. And so he was taking uh, his ministry to the community and not asking the community to come to him. And in that church, by the way, are a couple of other great friends that you really would want to have on this show, besides Bobby Hobby, who is a phenomenal leader, which Lance Wall now said, it's one of the few churches in America that actually get the context of what we're talking about here. In that church are two leaders, James and Anna Kramer. They have something called NUMA, like pneumatic, NUMA 33. They published one of the finest magazines I've quality I've ever seen called World Changers. They are working with Bobby and they are platforming business entrepreneurs worldwide inside this uh, seven mountain concept. And they have just said, we're going to go bring traction to this vision in the community without waiting for it to come to us. And so mm. you have to find that place where you're going to go to your community and you're not going to try to convert them to your theology, convert them to your politics. You're simply going there to serve them. And then asking that question, all of a sudden, the church no longer is irrelevant because irrelevance has to do with being disconnected. When you come to somebody and they may be 180 degrees from you politically, they may have a, a a family relationship that doesn't reflect a biblical standard according to us. But when you ask them, can I serve you? Then you become an ally and an ally is easier to converse with than an enemy. And remember the church, we've talked about this before that this uh, persuasion mindset, uh, influencing mindset has been replaced with the want to control. And so we have, conceptual things we have to deal with before we start talking about practical application because our thinking has not been renewed. We'll quote renewed thinking to the church, but we have a, a need for a renewed mindset when it comes to how we do mission. And again, coming back, and I'll give it back to you here, it's not either or, it's more. So, Garris, you're taking this message to the church. How are these pastors receiving this? I mean, you're a now retired pastor, so you, you've you been in their shoes. You've walked that same path. Are they receiving this? It's amazing. At first, it, uh, the old phrase, uh, like a doe in the headlights, it's like, can it really be this simple? And I, some of them, I just reach out and take them by the shoulder and say, can be. Let's let's unpack this together. And I, and I think that really, really uh, is the message of this reformation. This is not going to be a confrontation. It's going to be the release of truth spoken in love. And so when a harried pastor with a huge schedule, they all have that, by the way, when they can hear that they can uh, defuse some of that and make it simpler, but more effective, they're really hungry for that. And I, you know, I, when I, when I handed the church over, I knew I was coming into actually a more focused and concentrated season of life and ministry, because as Bobby Clinton used to say in his uh, leadership theory, we come into convergence, and when that convergence, and you'd, you'd appreciate this, John, having been a pilot yourself, is, it's like the Bernoulli principle of how airflow over a airfoil takes place. The air accelerates over the top of the wing, creating a low-pressure system, and you get lift. But when all of these things come together uh, it did for me. God brought me to a place where he said, I'm going to have you do three things. I'm going to have you write, mentor, and teach. The rest of it I'm taking off of your plate, running a local church ministry, because I want you to focus on this. And what I've experienced is that Bernoulli's principle, if you will, about creating a lift, my airflow has been condensed 
and focused. And when I come to these pastors, they feel the lift because I, I'm honestly, I'm not cheerleading anybody in this stuff. I'm just sharing with them the beauty and the power of what potential exists if we can just embrace it and not look at it as another interruption. So when they talk to me, they invite me, we speak, and I've got enough on my plate right now. I don't need another thing. When that's happening and I'm engaging leaders, um, I find that I need time with them personally to unpack it. And then they'll say, well, you talk to my leadership team and we do that. And then we'll, we'll throw it out in the church. And it's interesting when it makes that trickle effect from one-to-one with the leader to the leadership team to the church, you look across the auditorium or the sanctuary and you see people actually igniting. Uh, there's, there's significance. Like in the book, I talk about apostolic motherhood. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means this. Some mom who, number one, feels neglected by the church because in certain circles of fellowship, uh, a woman has no significant place of ministry. And so she's now uh, with child and she has children. She's by herself. The husband's away at work. What can she do for the Reformation? Well, how about this? How about speaking the truth and love to your children, prophesying hope over them, calling out their destiny, feeding them, clothing them, equipping them, educating them, loving them, engaging them when they come home after trauma and creating strong young men and women who will go out themselves to the seven mountains of culture. You can become as a mother locked inside maternal duties and you can become an one woman apostolic resource center that the devil is absolutely fearful of. So we have to shift some of this thinking to where we're no longer producing bright, shiny churches with pastors and missionaries as our primary goal of the equipping gifts. But this reformation is going to bring down the walls of division in all areas and release the church to potential she has never yet experienced in this epoch of time. So there, there, there's a long answer to your short question. Well, let's keep bringing that forward, right? I, um, you know, uh, here's kind of my view, right? If I look at... You said before, speaking the truth in love, right? What is that truth, Gareth, that you'd like to speak right now to people listening that are that are right now, they have that influence. God has put them in a certain, you know, mountain where they've, you know, they've been equipped, they've been trained. They want to yes. be part of a reformation. They want to be part of making a difference and bringing God's kingdom here. They want to move the needle. So what is that truth you would share to them? The truth that I've discovered is this. The church advances with hope not judgment. People will engage us if we have a message of hope and not judgment. Uh, uh, Billy Graham said, you know, the Holy Spirit's the one that convicts. We're just supposed to share the love of God. And I think if this simplification thing can get in our hearts and minds that we no longer uh, have to go and try to convince people of anything, we just begin to speak hope over them. Because the good news, one, one phrase that Paul used, he says the good news is telling people they've been made right with God. To begin to speak to people, I think the prophetic voice needs to rise up in the church, that prophetic voice that speaks encouragement to people who are, you've got the CEO that puts on the game face and they're burned out, you know it. But to go in an appropriate moment and privately begin to speak hope to them, that hope will become uh, the water in the garden of their calling, the, the water in their emotions. And if I'm a CEO or if I'm somebody that runs a small business and I get nothing but the slam and the judgment from people around me, whether they're people of faith or not, and that one person speaks hope and hope with wisdom, I'm going to go to that person for advice. So I think what we have to do in this season is begin to build the trust equity that only comes 
when we prophesy hope over people, not false shallow hope, but a hope that's that's anchored in who God created them to be. There's not a person that any of us, uh, of us that are listening to this podcast, there's not a person that we're going to meet that doesn't hunger for hope. And I think we have lost a message of hope. And in fact, in some ways, because we have created this divide between secular and sacred, we've created uh, a whole group of people who have lost the ability to move in persuasion and influence. And I'll give you one mm-hmm. quick uh, uh illustration, a man named John Woolman, who was a Quaker in the 1700s, shifted the entire Quaker movement from slave owners to abolitionists. And the way he did that is he got on a horseback on horseback and rode up and down the eastern seaboard, convincing and persuading and influencing uh, the primary leaders, the slaveholders of the Quaker movement to relinquish control of their slaves. He wouldn't, or uh, John Woolman wouldn't wear clothing that was produced by slave labor or dye his clothes with the dye of slave labor. When he went to London to talk to the Quaker movement, uh, he got off the boat and he looked like a hick in undyed, rough clothing that he refused to wear the finer things that required slave labor. And they looked at him askance, but when he began to speak, the anointing of the Holy Spirit came upon him and he began to speak the truth and love. And before the that meeting was over, they became abolitionists. They no longer, they wanted to abolish slavery. It was an evil. And this man who spent decades persuading and influencing people with the hope of something better shifted the entire in, in, environment of a movement. And when, when John Woolman showed up at the French Indian War, one of the chiefs in his broken form of English, he said, I want to hear where words come from. In other words, translation, I want to hear the source of what you just said. And the where of John Woolman's words were from the heart of God that could engage people who were living in error with such a hopeful, persuasive thinking and speech that they actually would change their lifestyle and lose millions of dollars because of the choice, but knew it was right. And it all began one-on-one. So I think we need to learn how to influence instead of control. And if this control that we've been doing has produced the benefits or the, uh, the environment that we have now, I think most leaders would just be real happy to make an exchange. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying in, you know, just basic terms is – as believers, we are part of the church. We are the church. So if the church, which is us, can love rather than judge and just go to people and serve, go to the government officials and say, how can I serve you? Go to the you know arts and entertainment of your community and say, how can I serve you? Go to the head of the school board and say, how can I serve you? If we can go and demonstrate it through love as the church, we are the church, then that's the way to have an impact for Christ. Not to go to church in our Sunday best and, you know, try to look perfect and act perfect and then go out and try to convict people. You said it. We can't convict people. That's not our job. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Our job is to love people and show them the love of Jesus through example. You know, a a man named Jerry Cook who wrote a a phenomenal book, Love, Acceptance, and Forgiveness, and should be in the library of every leader on the face of the earth. Love, Acceptance, and and Forgiveness by Jerry Cook. Jerry said, I wrote that book 40-some years ago, 
And I remember speaking to Jerry. We had him here to speak in our church before he passed away. And I, and I heard him speak his definition of love. And it's, it's become mine. I've stolen it from him. I'm going to use it for the rest of my life. It's the only one for me that works. And here's what Jerry said about what you just said, Sandra. Love is seeking the highest good for another person. Love is seeking the highest good for another person. So wherever I go, my first thing before I open my mouth is what is the highest good for that person? Now, I may not address that initially because it may be a bit too abrupt, but once we build this, what I call that trust equity with a person and we speak hope to them over time with that goal of their highest good, in mind, I can begin to seed into that highest good and begin to speak words that actually themselves are re- reformation words. They're reforming the way they think about themselves. And I think this is, this is a big deal. I think this is bigger than we realize, but it's simpler than we realize. You know, here, here's a, a thought for you, got, for you all I'd like to throw out there. You know, part of, you know, serving others, right, in, in, culturally right now with identity politics and kind of the discourse that's out there. And, and in my opinion, uh, you know, and this is really uh, shut down conversations and relationships. And uh, I believe the Christian church has played as big a part of this uh, as probably any other demographic that's out there, uh, you know, kind of the traditional church. Um, and what about this? You know, if I come to really understand my spiritual gifts, my core beliefs, and what if I'm sitting there with a coworker who I know doesn't share any of my beliefs at all? As a matter of fact, they could be the complete opposite of that. Am I willing to seek the highest good for them, another person who doesn't share any of my beliefs, and serve them in order to take a, you know, to create a connection and be in relationship? Because that is the only way, in my opinion, that we can actually start to have some influence with somebody else. But are we willing to to do that in a way that's loving? And you know, I would love just throw that out there as you know your thoughts on that because I think that's that's a huge roadblock in a lot of organizations yeah. and cultures that why why this is not happening. I think I think there's a there's an answer to that, and, and I'll give you my version of that. And I'm not assuming that I have the end-all answer, but here's what I've come to understand. When Jesus called 12 men to follow him, he asked them to belong before they believed. They were able to follow Jesus, and yes, we know that they were covenant people. I get that. But they were not born again. They did not possess the Spirit. They were in covenant relationship with God. But the Lord was so big of Spirit that he allowed them to belong before they believed. He actually allowed them to do ministry I mean, think about this. These guys aren't indwelled by their spirit, but they're casting out demons, they're healing the sick, and they're doing all of this stuff. And Jesus was so large and comfortable in his understanding of the kingdom that he was representing that he could bring people along with him that did not yet believe what he believed. And I think, for me, that's become a huge thing. As I look at Scripture, Jesus, and I don't mean to make your audience nervous with what I'm about to say, but Jesus never gave an altar call. He had people say, just follow me. And in the following, the belief come after the belonging was assured. And Jesus never gave altar calls. There was never just as I am played in the background as people came <laughs> forward, and there's nothing wrong with that. I got saved that way, by the way. But Jesus did not have much of the entrapments that we have uh, of ministry and faith that really he didn't carry those things. And so we've made those 
essential to relationship. In other words, well, we're going to let you serve with us uh, only when you get your act together. But I've got a lot. Let me, let me give you an example. This is a great one. A friend of mine, uh, name is Ryan Sari, pastors uh, Oregon House. It's a pub church in Portland, Oregon. When that concept first came to our leadership team that uh, had to make a decision on that, uh, people were a little bit like, what? A pub church? What do you mean by that? People are going to get drunk and have church? No. They, they purchased a building in downtown Portland, the Hawthorne District, one of the most hip areas in Portland and probably one of the places where the, the weird Portland concept came from. It's just a real eclectic neighborhood. And they've got this building. It's two stories in the bottom. Uh, is a really classic pub. I've been in England a number of times and been to pubs. They're, they're not they're not your tavern in America, and they're not a drunk stop. They're a, they're a community center. So they created this tavern. They they have all these IPAs and beers that they pull and they serve, and they give a portion of their income back into the immediate neighborhood. So far in five years, they've given $161,000 back into community things, not faith mm. things, but building better roads, parks, helping people that are in trouble. The upstairs of the two-story facility is a large community meeting hall. That's where they, when the pubs close, they have church up there. And during the week, they run a business, have some of the best food in Portland, Oregon, unbelievable food. I've got a brother-in-law that's on staff there. And that, to me, kind of tells me what the ministry of the future is going to have to look like. The, there's no division. It's like we're part of you. We want to influence you with the love of God to such degree that we're going to give to you before we demand that you respond to us. You know, I'm a... Uh, uh been sort of branded as an expert on millennials and I go out to marketing conferences and such and talk about them. And, you know, one of the sort of uh, commonalities that millennials have is they don't sort of have this work bucket, life bucket, spiritual yeah. bucket. Their life is a stew. I, I kind of say, you know, I was brought up as, you know, the border on baby boomer and generation uh, X. I was a divided plate. Like I went to work, I went to church, I had home life. You know, it was all very separate. Um, but the millennials, they're 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 astute. Their life is all integrated, every single piece of it together. Their friends are their family. Their community is, you know, and so they they live in in communes almost. You know, where like four friends will buy a house on the same street and bring their kids up together, and it's the, truly the take a village thing, right? So if we're not creating a church that fits into that, um, then they're gonna, their numbers are going to continue to dwindle. And that's exactly what your pub church is. It's it's part of their community, their daily life. It's where they go to eat and hang out and meet friends. And, oh, yeah, I go to church here, too. Um, yep. And so that's exactly what you're describing. How awesome is that? Hey, there's another one, uh, another friend of mine, AJ Svoboda. In fact, he writes for Christianity Today. Uh, he's a young PhD, great guy. He's doing the same thing. They're buying property uh, in another part of Portland. They're not going to do a pub, at least that I know of at this time, but they're going to have more of a community center focus. And there are people stepping up and funding the purchase of that that would never fund a traditional church sanctuary. These are people that get the Seven Mountain concept, and there is uh, a majority of his funds have been raised right now to go ahead and make the purchase. This this is shifting the, the mindset of not only the church, but the culture towards the church. And 
Uh, this is the sound of Reformation. Whenever the clink of those glasses in the pub and it's done with love, uh, and whenever somebody has a, a square dance in the community upstairs in the room and the sound of those feet shuffling, those are the sounds that come from the sound of Reformation and that God is saying to the church, let's go back and revisit this thing again because we've gotten, we've gotten a little bit off track here. We've, we've become institutionalized. We've become protective of our turf. And the millennials, like you had mentioned, Sandra, I've got, I've got bucket loads of millennials around me. I just kind of a papa to them. They really want to cross-pollinate generations. They don't want to just be isolated by themselves. They want spiritual moms and dads, but they don't want legalists and angry believers that, that see this narrow slice of reality and demand that everybody step inside that narrow slice and call that the mission of the church. Hey, Garris, I want to share with you, too, uh, you know, in the in the business world, uh, a friend of Steve and I, a guy named Stan Bullis, he started a company years ago called Unbridled Solutions. They just did traditional event and media planning conferences for large corporations, and he, and, uh, and he felt that his role in that culture was to connect with everybody, to disciple them, and find, help them to find their unique value and to help them to operate in that. Uh, it was, mm. it's an amazing culture. Now here's what happened out of that. Uh, one of the women on his staff, a very good graphic designer, and they were outsourcing most of that. He went up to her and said, Hey, this is, you were designed to do this. And I want to come in alongside of you and help you start your own company. And we're going to put it under our umbrella, Unbridled Designs. And I want to, you know, fast forward a few years. Now there's 17 companies that have been launched from Stan continually developing, equipping, mentoring, discipling his people in the in the and launching people into what they were meant to do, and uh, I, if I remember correctly, they have given over four million dollars back into the community, and they are having a huge influence right here in Denver. Um, right now as we speak, because uh, like John Maxwell says, right, you have to connect before you can pull, you know, both, you know, what starts individually, yeah. right, working with somebody individually, then goes to a an organization that can go to an entire community that can transform the nation of yeah. a city. So that, you know, that is the path on how each one of us can be, you know, play a role, not only in Reformation, but discipling nations. Absolutely. And most of the prophets that you read uh, in the Old Testament, they prophesied the cities and nations. Rarely did they prophesy to individuals. So what God is trying to set up now is, is the voice of the church to the nations. Because, again, the larger picture is that the kingdoms of this world would become the kingdom of our Lord. And I think we have to always keep that long-distance uh, image in mind that it all begins, as you said, one person to another person one person to a group, a group to a city, a city to a nation. And while we prophesy a preferred future, there's that traction we have to gain one-on-one. And I think 99.9% of the problems we have in America would would be gone if people could just sit down and talk with each other. Isn't that true? I just, I just, I, I, I have people in my life now that I once looked at as an enemy that now are some of my dearest friends because God ordained an intersection of conversation where we both got to admit our wrong and ask for forgiveness and be healed. And I'd give my life for those people. And at one point in my life, I would do anything to not be around them. And I have, I have found that the greatest allies in our kingdom are on the other side of resolved betrayal. And if we can get to that place where we're that large of spirit, 
God can do anything through us. Can I throw out a challenge to everybody listening, and I will do it myself? What if we, uh, I guarantee you, if we're thinking of somebody that we really is on the opposite side of the spectrum of, you know, pretty much everything that we believe right now, why don't we just go invite them and go have coffee and just listen? Just listen and ask questions and get to know them and find one nugget, one thing that you can do to serve them forward. Point them toward a resource, connect them to somebody in your network, give them a word of encouragement or hope towards something that they're working on and just start to build that bridge. And if people can just start having those conversations, and and you know what, we want to hear from you. If you're willing to go do that, shoot us an email, uh, post on this blog post about doing that. But you know what, if we can just start doing those little things, and I know Steve probably wants to jump in there on that. Yeah, John, uh, that's exactly what I started to do when I left working for Dr. Dobson six years ago. I, I, I realized that I lived in such an echo chamber where we believed what we believed and we were right. And, and there was something that was just inherently, uh, I just had this discontent within me. Like, I had, this doesn't feel right. And so I started to reach out across the aisle to people who were believers on the other side of the political spectrum. And it it's fundamentally shifted my life and, and changed how I look at things. And I'm much less dogmatic and much less of just a... a, a, a not Jack a pleasant Wagon. guy. Not not a pleasant guy to be around. I, I will jump in there, and I think we've all gone through that kind of a metamorphosis. If we're going to be uh, having these kinds of conversations, we've all had to realize that we came to a place where we realized that we were not reflecting the heart of God to the culture around us. And uh, you know, the only people that Jesus really got mad at uh, were the religious leaders who who spoke uh, in such a tone that there was anger and rejection, and he could never hear the heart of God through them. And he got mad at that, but he didn't get mad at at the folks that were caught in adultery, that were drugged before him. He didn't get uh, dismissive to the woman at the well who was a Samaritan that the Jewish people called dogs. He didn't didn't call her a dog. He, He was willing, as I said earlier, to drink from a water container that had her saliva on it. And I and I think that God really wants us to get our hearts healed up. I think the church has become, uh, and Sandra mentioned this earlier, we stand on the mountain of religion and family, and we yell at the other five mountains in a tone that sounds nothing like Jesus. And I think I think we can we can learn from Him, and we can learn from our own brokenness, where we have a political persuasion or we have a theological preference, and we allow that to drive our conversations. And when we do that, we have to create enemies to support the debate that we're going to have with them. And in the debate, there has to be a winner and a loser, and we're going to be the winner at all costs. And what happens is we divide ourselves farther in this secular and sacred illusion that we have. And God says, I want you to stop that. I want you to put it down and I want you to walk with grace because grace, mercy, and hope and love are the, are the coinage of the kingdom. So Garris, uh, before the interview, we were talking about, John mentioned a story about reaching out to his church leadership and trying to help bridge that divide between the sacred secular and it going nowhere, him finding a new church. I have the exact same story. And so I, I know a lot of listeners are are in a place where they're feeling very discontented 
with they're feeling like, yes, Garris, you're saying the right things, but how do I, how, how do they introduce their church leadership to what you're talking about? Well, that's a tough question because sometimes uh, having been a church leader for over three decades, I get, I get the opposition that they're talking about. I can see it on both sides of the spectrum now. And before I didn't see it as clearly as I do now, but I think what we're dealing with is again, people will see some change as threatening the status quo. And, and when a church is led by a primary, primarily a pastoral driven gift, sometimes protection becomes the primary thing that they feel they're called to do. In other words, we're going to protect the status quo. And that is always a recipe for death. And there's sometimes uh, the only way out of that is to literally walk away from it. But then there's times where God will call you to engage it. And I think you need to, you need to find a way to engage um, leaders that, are, that is not inside the context of leadership. And what I mean by that, do you have access to that leader in, in a way that may be recreational? Do you have access to that leader uh, to have them over for dinner so that they can take off their clerical collar uh, thinking for a moment? I, I know for me, I've had people, I had people approach me when I didn't get it. And uh, I looked at them as a threat. And so I didn't receive the truth I needed to receive. And I think, again, it comes down to a character thing where a lot of people that are leaving the church now are not leaving the church because they're walking away from God. They're just walking away from the model that we're telling them that they have to receive. So it's, it's not an evil thing. And I, I really boil this thing down to an interpersonal relationship or a personal relationship between two people. If you don't have it with your leader, it's not going to do you any good to make an appointment and tell him what's wrong or her what's wrong. It really, you have to go back to influence the sphere of influence that you have. In other words, if you don't have a relationship, a personal one with a pastor, you can walk into the office and have your list of things that you'd like him to do differently or her to do differently. And frankly, it's not going to get anywhere. I, I don't know that there's really a, a clean answer for this. Sometimes you just have to pick up and go somewhere else where there's a receptivity there. But I have noticed that leaders who have a heart after God, even though they may be wounded and hold a person off, after a season of time when they see life happening somewhere else, they're going to ask, why is that life happening? And then they're, they're going to come and they're going to ask questions. I, I deal with a lot of pastors uh, of different persuasions. Uh, I'll be in a Baptist church here soon, and I was just in a historically Pentecostal church, and I was just in an independent church. So all these churches across the board, when I talk to leaders, I just, I just get time with them uh, and try to tell them the prophets knocking on your door are not all your enemies. And some of them actually have the next step that you've been praying for, but you've got to let them in. You've got to talk with them. And I don't think that there's a really easy answer because I, we can have all the purity of truth and, and really have something to give to, uh, to a leader. But if a leader's heart's not willing to receive it, Sometimes you just have to move on because your calling can't be stymied unless God calls you to stay there. Sometimes he'll do that. But sometimes God says, I need to keep you moving. So you need to find another home, but your departure is going to be a big deal. And in that departure, and this is a little off your topic, but that departure has to keep a bridge open as far as it's possible with you to keep a bridge. So when that leader comes to their senses, they can walk across that span and engage you again and not feel like they've been thrown away. So the words that we say in these interpers or these interactions with people really will pave the road uh, into a new future or stop it uh, 
and kill it in its tracks. It's, it's yeah. a tough one. I, it's a tough one. Yeah, Absolutely. I, I have to say, you know, I too, we just changed churches after 14 years. And, you know, we tried, we talked to, you know, folks in the sphere of influence. I, you know, did did a lot of work for the church and, and poured into them. But then you get to a point where you can't, you know, we, we couldn't let seeds of bitterness enter our relationship with the Lord. And so we made a big change and it was a really, really big deal. And so you have to get to a point of what I call vote with your feet, right? A lot of pastors see new people coming in and they think, oh, our church is super healthy, but they're not looking at the back door of all the people that are leaving. And so, you know, at some point, um, you have to do what's best for your walk with the Lord. And sometimes that means just voting with your feet and finding a new spot. And that's what all three of us have done. And, you know, our families and our spiritual walks are are better for it. Um, And I still pray for, you know, for our church. It was the first church of our of our married relationship. And still have a lot of friends there. And, um, you know, at some point, um, that leadership of, you know, all the churches around the country who have a back, what I call a backdoor problem, they're going to have to address it, um, you know, or else. And But yet, I see wonderful churches like our new church, Milestone, um, that is completely focused on loving the community, loving the broken, just being completely authentic, you know, and, and not being about programs and putting people in buckets uh, and, you know, pouring into small groups and creating small group leaders and mentoring and discipling and, um, and just no judgment, like just come in, everybody just come. I don't care what you believe, just come be with us. Um, and that is a profoundly different culture, but it takes, a you know, abandoning, it, it takes having the courage to abandon the legalistic way in which some of us were taught the Bible, uh, me included. And, uh, and so having that courage to say, all right, you know, the, the God I know is the God of love, not of all these rules. And so if you can then say that, say, okay, the God I know is a God of love, not the God of rules. So I can't look at people that are breaking the quote rules differently. They're my brother and sister. And so bring them, bring them to church, go drive around on Sunday morning and just round them up. So, you know, you're um, you're talking right in all of our passions right now. And so, you know, we might have to make this like a three part series. I don't know. Well, you know, just to, Sandra, to add to what you're saying, you know, I I have come to a place, you know, the old church uh, uh, saying in the essentials, unity and the non-essentials, liberty and all things love. I, I am I'm going back to my essentials and I'm really asking uh, what are my essentials? Because until I understand my essentials, then my non-essentials will not have a, a, a comparison point. And I, I'm finding now that my essentials are very minimal. I, I do have some, and I think I'm more in line with some of the early church creeds than I am these long things of this is what we believe. And I, it all centers around Christ, and he is the core of the church. And we have to reduce and, and this sounds negative in one respect. We have to reduce our understanding of him down to the most simple form because the rest of it 
can be up for debate, and I'm not talking about the person of Christ and that he's the way and the truth and life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. But my pastor told me this. We quote that verse as exclusionary, but it's more invitational. Come through us. Come through Christ in us. Come experience this one who calls himself the way, and let us show you love. Because if we have an essential list that's huge and a non-essential list that's even bigger, then everything is overly complicated. And that's where religion feeds. It feeds on lists and programs. And programs are not wrong, and lists are not wrong, as long as they're empowered by love. Garris, that is an amazing way to close this out. My man, I just love talking to you. I know John and Sandra feel the exact same way. There is so much that we could talk about, so we will definitely have you on again in the future. And uh, any just super quick final thought that you'd like to leave the listener? Uh, God's going to get you there. Just admit to him right now that you don't know everything you think you know and become a child, become a student, and become humble and become what the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord. I'll give you the desires of your heart. That word delight in Hebrew means to be pliable. You have to be pliable. And once you're pliable, the very desires that you'll seek will now change because the pliability will inform the desires that you actually ask God of. And just stay pliable, stay childlike, and God will show you things you've never imagined. Mm. That was a great closing. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, brother. And uh, hey, uh, also for people, if they want to connect with you, you know, how do they find you? Your book? Which just came out. It's on Amazon. It's called The Sound of Reformation by Garris Elkins, E-L-K-I-N-S. And how else do they uh, connect with you and find you, Garris? Well, I've got a a blog, prophetichorizons.com. And then I've got my uh, website, garriselkins.com. They'll all kind of link back and forth with each other. My wife's books are also on on Amazon, profound books, called Books of Blessings. Dr. Alveda King uh, recently said that along with Oswald Chambers, Jan's book goes with her for her devotions. I mean, it's a phenomenal bunch of books. So there's some really good resources there. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Gareth. This was just, uh, an, just an enlightening and a needed conversation. And I just really Thank challenge you. people to get out there, have that conversation with somebody else. And you know, and if you have any stories of people you know who are who are bringing this heart and this mindset into their sphere of influence right now and making changes, you know, locally in their community, uh, we we want to hear about them. We'd love to highlight what they're doing and bring them on the podcast. So please, we want to hear from you on the, on that topic also. 